my friends, to episode 100, a nice milestone of the MailRight Real Estate Agent Podcast Show. And of course, my co-host, Jonathan Denwood, the founder of this show, has been on all 100 episodes or actually a few he skipped it and I le- left me to do them solo, but we'll give you credit for all 100. Oh, thank um, you, Thomas. And, and of course, uh, I, I made my debut on episode 57 as a guest and then you just couldn't resist my charm. So by episode 66, I was a co-host. That, I, could, I could see potential there. <laughs> it was rough. It was a rough stone, but I could see potential there. Well, I'll tell you, I'm excited about the guests we have today. It needed, uh, it needed a good painting and re- a bit of re- renovation, but it will be a good, you know, I knew it could be. <laughs> well, I want to I introduce our guest, uh, John. I got, uh, I'm just going to destroy your name. Augusta Nelly. How come I said it right before and that one? <laughs> I'm destroying it. John is all flabbergasted now. <laughs> John Agastinelli of the Agastinelli Realty Group in Massachusetts is joining us today on episode 100. Uh, you want to introduce yourself a little, John? Tell people who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. First, uh, Jonathan and Thomas, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm a real estate broker and investor. Uh, my real estate career started in the late 80s in the banking industry. I worked at the FDIC for six um, years after college. We examined the causes of bank failure. Mm. And then I moved over into the foreclosure unit where I managed foreclosures in several New England states. And then in 1997, I started a uh, spec home building business. And then at the end of that year, I started a real estate brokerage business, primarily to list and sell the spec homes I was uh, constructing. Uh, small builder, basically building two homes a year. Uh, did that from 1997 through 2005, and that's when the market turned in the Massachusetts area. Um, my market area is halfway between Worcester and Boston. It's called the Metro West area of uh, Massachusetts. So the profitability started to fall out of that in, uh, right in 2005 when the markets turned here. Uh, about 18 months prior to the national market turning, the national average uh, turning. And then uh, I decided to get in uh, to try to solicit banks uh, for their bank-owned inventory because foreclosures were starting to mount. Yep. And that's, uh, I purchased a real estate franchise. That's where I met my co-author. Um, collectively, we have over 50 years of experience in the business. And we decided to pool our experience to solicit the banks for that inventory. Now, this was in 2007, really before the crap really hit the fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went from no listings to over 100 in about a 16-month period. Wow. So once the, the financial crisis took hold, that was in 2008, um, we really ramped the business up and, and sold hundreds of bank-owned properties since that time until about we got out of the business in about 2013. So, and I know you touched on your co-author, uh, which implies you wrote a book, and of course we know you did, and we're going to discuss that book. But before I get to the book, I want to ask you because, uh, you know, I came into real estate as a small business owner. I had small business experience, um, and a lot of agents I come across don't. Um, they just get a license and treat it like a job. You have have you have to have a unique perspective on real estate coming out of FDIC and, and knowing what you know and seeing what you've seen. I mean, what is, you, what is your take on real estate and how you see realtors approach the business uh, for better or for worse? Uh, interesting question. Well, coming out of the FDIC, I was uh, um, managing foreclosures and, and 
primarily that it was from the bigger developers that had gone upside down once the market had turned. Now this is going back to the last cycle that um, back in the late eighties, early nineties, it peaked out, I think in 1989. So from that, I learned to be extremely uh, conservative. So when I got into constructing homes in 97, uh, I was only building a couple at a time. Um, you really, the market, the real estate market can't turn quick enough to get hurt. Uh, if you only have a couple houses going, if you have a 25 right. lot subdivision and you have a three to five year sellout period, you can get hammered. You can get rich, but you can also file for bankruptcy. So I keep <clears throat> coming into it. I think uh, I was much more conservative than my competitors. So to your point about uh, the mindset of the average realtor out there, I, I agree. I think that I hate to say it, you know, 20% of them do 80% of the business. That's right. a pretty well-known statistic. And it's that way for a reason. That 20% is usually educated, um, continues to, to research the market, really knows what's going on. And those are the people that uh, buyers and sellers should be really looking to work with. Does the Agostinelli Realty Group mainly deal with these uh, spec homes you build, or do you handle re retail sales and, and listings as well? Well, uh, so the, my business is, is cha changed with the markets over the years. So um, we changed and basically sold almost exclusively bank-owned properties from 2007 through 2013. Yep. Of course, if a family member or a friend or a past client I was looking to do a real estate transaction. I helped out there too, but that was a smaller percentage of the business. I would say 90% of it was really from uh, the bank-owned uh, properties, whether it was on the list side or the buy side. I've represented quite a few um, real estate fix and flipper types. Right. So do you, do you I, well, I don't know how else to phrase it. Do you deliberately avoid retail sales uh, or, do you, or, or is it just because you're so busy with your spec house, housing and, and back then the uh, REOs? Well, it, it's interesting. Now, again, my business is in flux. We just finished the book. We're just really on that uh, middle part of, of uh, uh, marketing the book. Uh, but now I'm focusing on getting back into business, and that's a combination of Right now, I'm not building any spec homes. It's more fix and flips, and I am doing some traditional listings, which okay. is which is a change for me because it's been quite it's yeah. been quite a while since I've been doing traditional listings. Gotcha. Well, um, we've alluded to this book, so why don't we dive into the book? Because uh, I, I was excited to have you on just because of your background, but but also because you're an author, and um, that's something that we share in common. Um, I, you know, Jonathan found me uh, through my blog. Um, I'm, I'm an avid blogger and uh, I enjoy when colleagues write books. I, I know several realtors that have written books, everything from romance novels to, to uh, murder mysteries to actual industry books. So it's kind of cool. Uh, I think we're a creative bunch. <laughs> so the book, tell me the title. Okay. Uh, the title of the book is Easy Money and the American Real Estate Bonzi Scheme. A very enticing title. <laughs> so um, well, let me ask you this. Uh, did you, would you have written this book um, had you not had your prior banking and FDIC experience? Or, or do you think it, it stemmed from that uh, experience 
you had in, in your uh, repertoire to have the uh, audacity to write this book? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a good, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I think that that experience gave me a, a broader uh, experience base to, to form opinions when we were selling these bank-owned properties. So both Chris and I, uh, my co-author, um, ha- have been through a couple real estate cycles. Chris has been through three. I've been through two. And I think it's the, the, the combination of that experience. So we witnessed some of the nonsensical lending practices that were happening leading up to the bubble. Right. Then once the bubble burst and we were selling these bank-owned properties, we had the opportunity to meet hundreds of people that were foreclosed on yeah. that were still in their house and then eventually needed to be evicted. So we, we got to hear their stories and we witnessed the disconnect between what the media was reporting as the true causes of the collapse, and then what we witnessed. And fortunately, uh, both Chris and I, I should say, were fortunate enough to serve on a broker advisory council to the largest mortgage servicer in the country. And it really gave us an opportunity to speak to other top brokers across the country to verify that what we experienced in the Northeast was really happening throughout the country. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I... I, um did a lot of REOs, but I did a ton of short sales. And with the REOs, you, you may or may not ever meet the homeowner, but with the short sales, you're not only meeting them, you're spending yeah. up to 10 months with them. Yeah. Um, or in the case of my very first short sale where I had no clue what I was doing two and a half years. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, and, and, and it was so frustrating to, like you were saying, hear the stories of these actual people going through this, watching their lives just getting torn apart. Meanwhile, the media is talking about something completely different. And I'm thinking, you know, where, where are they reporting this news from? So the book is, um, well, can you, I know it's a, it's a broad subject, but can you kind of surmise what's the book about? What did you address in the book? All right. So the primary reason we wrote it was this disconnect between what was being reported and what we witnessed. So we, we, we talk about what we believe were the primary causes of uh, the real estate crash and subsequent financial crisis. Yeah. So it, it, we really go into more than just it was greedy banks and Wall Street shenanigans because it was much more complicated than that. Really, we believe the root of the problem was, is, was and is poor government housing policy that's based on a false premise that homeownership is a great financial investment. So we talk about that. We talk about the Community Reinvestment Act. We talk about the Federal Reserve and how they manipulate rates and the effect it has on the real estate market. We briefly discuss rating agencies, mark-to-market accounting, but we also talk about the real estate industrial complex. So are you familiar with that particular term? So really what we're referring to there, oh, go ahead, Thomas. Well, I was going to say, to be honest with you, only because I did my research on your book. <laughs> okay. So, so and we know it's, it's a, a, I don't know, I don't think we coined that term, but uh, really the real estate industrial complex is, refers to the National Association of Realtors, yeah. the National Association of Home Builders, the Mortgage Bankers Association, the America's Bankers Association, and then there's a couple other uh, acronym groups where you have dues-paying members that want their cause su- supported and supported at any cost. So I'm a, I'm a dues-paying member. I'm a realtor. Mm-hmm. So what does the realtors organization do? They do anything they can to promote housing. 
and to promote housing at any cost. Yep. I make more money if I'm selling a $500,000 house than if it's a $400,000 house. Same thing with anyone that's uh, the mortgage uh, originators, the, the lenders. They make more money off of a uh, $300,000 mortgage instead of a $250,000 mortgage. Yep. So we really hit, hit that group hard too because when you read a newspaper or an article about housing, who are they quoting? Right? right. They're, not, they're not really digging deep and no. finding the truth. No. They're going to these um, associations that have uh, an ulterior motive, if you will. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, and, 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 I mean, and to your point, in, um, at the risk of being on a very short soapbox, uh, the other thing we've talked about on this show in the past is not only does NAR at all costs promote buying and selling homes, which as a realtor, of course, you know, I, I support that, but they, they also um, at all costs support their cause of new members. Just yeah. Oh, yeah. members, right? And, and and we all know the training involved in getting a, a real estate license. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, I I think my manicurist goes through more to get her beauty school <laughs> certificates than uh, than a realtor goes through. Um, so it's it's and it's interesting you bring up NAR because um, you know recently NARs come under fire just for their lack of response to the whole. Um, Zillow um, moves that they're right. making in Nevada and Florida right now, mm-hmm. um, which I won't open up that can of worms. But mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, the, getting back to your book, um, well, let me let me ask you this before I dive in. Uh, would I would imagine you got a little pushback? What was what was the kind of what kind of resistance did you get from not only maybe the community at large, but from from your peers, from your from your from from the real estate community? You know, it's it's interesting that you ask that question because I never really thought about it, and I wonder if people have thoughts and are just not expressing them to me, or if they just recognize that what we're saying is actually accurate. So. Um, to be honest with you, there hasn't been much, much pushback, but, you know, I'm not sending the book to, to, to the National Association of Realtors. <laughs> I've been, you know, it's not, we're not promoting it to those groups. So my guess is that if they really dug into the book, they would try to discredit it somehow. Well, you know, and maybe because, I mean, we've had... Um I mean, I've seen some movies that, I mean, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat like it's a Stallone movie, only I'm watching The Big Short or Too Big to mm-hmm. Fail or Inside mm-hmm. Job in Margin Call. You know, mm-hmm. those are the movies that just get me fired up. And mm-hmm. so you, when, with enough of that paving, paving the way for you, the book really, in a sense, is, is not as controversial as it may sound, um, just from knowing what we know now. But the, the point I'm getting to is, so you've, you've written this book, um, why do people need to read it at this point? What, what, what's the compelling reason to read this book? Well, they need to read it if we want to affect change and vo- avoid the next crash. It's coming. So uh, a lot of the same policies that we saw in place leading up to the last bubble are in place today. So we've all heard that uh, mortgage lending is tight. Right. Tight relative to what, right? <laughs> tight relative to the nonsensical lending practices that were, were available in 2005 and 2006, where uh, you could liar loans, you could state your income, 
no documentation loans, um, interest only loans, uh, all, uh, option arm mortgages. So those products, which were at the time called sensible, uh, <laughs> sensible mortgages were, were just the opposite, right? So yeah. the Dodd-Frank Act, some good came out of the Dodd-Frank Act. Those loan products are no longer legal. But outside of that, we are seeing Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA um, doing the same things that they were doing leading up to the bubble. So just the other day, I read, I read in an article that, so the Dodd-Frank Act said that the maximum debt-to-income ratio uh, can be 43%, right? right? But Fannie, Freddie, all the government agencies are exempt from that. So Fannie and Freddie were doing debt to incomes up to 45%. Yep. They just announced yesterday, or I just read it yesterday, they're now going to 50% debt to income. Yep. That doesn't leave much margin for a financial upset, a, a loss of a job or uh, reduced work hours. All of a sudden, there's no money left to go to the mortgage or, or should I say, food and other living expenses. Right. So you, we're starting to see a familiar sight. Um, and, uh, and of course, you bring up Dodd-Frank and uh, what was it, June 8th or so? I think we uh, saw the repeal of the Dodd-Frank. So what are you, what's your take on that? What's that going to open up for us? Well, you know, so it passed the House. And I think that when people read that headline, they're like, okay, Dodd-Frank is gone. Well, not so fast. It has to get through the Senate. Right. Uh, my gut tells me it's not going to happen. Um, so where does it go from here? Do we go back to status quo? Is Trump able to enact some executive orders that kind of reach a, some sort of middle ground? Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Mm. But he's made clear, you know, he, he's, he's made clear that he wants to get rid of 75% of regulation. And he's done what he can to reduce it uh, from uh, executive orders. Well, and, you know, I can remember last year, um, I, I literally had uh, buyers especially hit the brakes and go, I'm waiting until after the election. They based everything they were doing personally on the outcome of the election. And um, <laughs> that's another soapbox I'll avoid. But what what is, you know, and this is probably a different answer today than it would have been if I asked you in January. But what, what do you think that this administration, that um, Trump's administration is going to, um, how's it going to impact our real estate market in, uh, just in the coming year? Okay, so right out of the gate, uh, he had an executive order. I think it was within a week of when, when he was sworn in to suspend the FHA mortgage insurance premium cut yeah. that the Obama administration slipped in at the 12th hour. So um, we believe that that was a wise decision since the mutual mortgage insurance fund that uh, is there to cover any potential losses at FHA. So Congress mandated a 2% threshold. Right. So that 2% threshold wasn't enough to offset the losses that they took during the financial crisis, and it cost the taxpayer $1.7 billion. Now, this cut would have saved anyone um, – borrowing money from the FHA if the cut actually went through about 40 to 50 bucks a month. But I will argue that if that's how close you are financially as to whether you should purchase a home or not, I would say maybe you're not quite ready to purchase a home. So I believe it was a wise decision. I believe that mortgage insurance fund needs to have a cushion because 
Real estate markets go in cycles. We know it does. And I think that we need to save for that rainy day and not ask the taxpayer to bail them out yet again. Well, I, I, and I agree to that to a certain point because I mean, I I mean, honestly, based on the conversations I've had in the last year, um, you know, that rainy day is, uh, um, well, I was expecting it to hit already. You know, it's been cloudy for a while, but we just haven't seen the rain. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we were anticipating some significant changes this year that um, haven't happened the way we thought they would. Now, I mean, in the short term, that's great for the market because, um, you know, it's it's a busy market. Um, Jonathan and I, right before the show, we're talking. I mean, it's I've already made my numbers this year in June that that took me all last year to make. Um, it's just been a, a lot busier number mm-hmm. uh, of transactions going on, um, and I think some of that came from when the Fed um, uh, initially were going to raise rates earlier this mm-hmm. year, which you know that was a big fizzle. Mm-hmm. Um, so bringing up the Fed, you know, what how? how's the Fed playing into this this year? I mean, what, what's your take on what the Fed's doing? Okay. Uh, I'd like to go, do you mind if I go back to Trump for one more second? No, please do. So then we'll get into the Fed. So um, I think it's important that we talk about how some of the things that he wants to accomplish, he would like to get rid of Dodd-Frank. He would like to get rid of the CFPB. Mm-hmm. He would, he, he has proposed a $6 billion cut to HUD. So these things could have an enormous impact on the real estate market if they were all to come to fruition. Now, I think that many of his ideas will not come to fruition, but if they do, it it, it would have a huge impact on the market. So to say with any certainty, like what's going to happen, I think uh, is a fool's errand because we don't know until those policies either get approved or, or, or the legislation does not pass. So it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. So I think there's a huge variable on which way the market can go based on the outcome of those things. Getting to the Fed, another huge variable, right? So originally the economy uh, looked extremely strong. The thought was that there were going to be three or four rate hikes this year. Right. Um, I do believe that uh, we're expecting to have one uh, in June. Now, uh, from what I've read, that the majority of people think that it's likely that there might not be another increase this year. So originally, they, they thought there would be three or four increases. Right. So it's interesting to note that the 30-year fixed rate is still below 4%. I mean, we're, we're within a percent of uh, a historic low. Right. That's so amazing. It, it is amazing. So, uh, of course, if the interest rates continue to increase, that's going to have downward pressure on real estate pricing. But um, I don't see it happening, and I don't see it happening fast if it does happen. Well, and bringing that up, you know, so some of the scuttlebutt um, in my market is people are starting to have that familiar feeling of 2006 and seven. Um, you know, because. Um, you know, here in San Diego, we were knee deep in it by 2007. I was already doing my first short sales in 2007. Um, late 2006 was when I got my very first one. And so w- anything that reminds people of that time, they, they start really backing off. And ev- everyone keeps asking me, you know, well, when are these prices going to level off? When, you know, now I don't see them going up in the leaps and bounds they were going up in in 03 and 04. Um, appraisers are being a lot more stringent on that. So you have to have the cash if you want to go over and above. 
mm-hmm. um, whereas before it did, it seemed like they were just signing off on at value all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not seeing that as much. But um, what do you tell people when they are they're in this kind of uh, limbo of um, the market seems like it's strong, but the, it's starting to look familiar to the 07, 08 era. So, so that's a great point. So we dedicated two chapters in the book to this subject. So really, uh, the first chapter talks about what a typical real estate cycle looks like, right? So we talked about it earlier. You, right. you reach the peak, then it goes down in a recession phase, you hit the trough, and then it starts coming back up. So I, I think it's important for, for buyers uh, to understand that there is a cycle to it. So, of course, as you're approaching the next peak, it, it increases risk. So we have a, a chapter dedicated to what a typical cycle looks like. And then the next chapter talks about why this most recent cycle had a larger amplitude. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there are some uh, economic theorists from 125 years ago that talked about the real estate cycle and the, the average length from peak to peak or a trough to trough being about 18 years. Coincidentally, this most recent cycle was 18 years. The one prior to that was 10. So there's some guide there. But what we do in the book is we give the, the, the tips and tricks of how you can determine where your market is in that cycle. Because what happened in Metro West Boston in 2005, we were well ahead of the curve when we reached the peak. So we were 18 months different from the national average. So it's important to understand that when when you read an article about the the where the real estate market is, they're always, or they're usually talking about a national average basis. And that might be good for you, or it might be completely unrelated to what's going on in your market. That's so true. I mean, I I can remember talking about short sales with, I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay area and I still have realtor friends up there. And I was telling them, you know, we're getting hammered down here and they didn't know what I was talking about. It was still, um, you know, boom town up there. Um, their market didn't really hit the skids until late 2007, early 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so they were experiencing it almost a year later than we were in San Diego, California. And that's why it's so important to, it, it's not just location, it's also price point, right? So what's right. happening on the lower end of the market, so lower end of the market for, for us out here is, you know, three or 400,000 compared to like what's going on over a million. You know, right. So th- there's a big difference between even in the same region at different price points. So I think, you know, and we stress that in the book, but I think it's important for people to understand it. So they're not uh, using something they read that might not apply to their market. Right. And again, we're talking about the book, Easy Money and the American Real Estate Ponzi Scheme, folks. Um, and I'm going to jump over to Jonathan because I'm getting that look like it's time for a commercial. <laughs> oh, I think we've got another five minutes, but because um, I knew this was going to be a detailed interview, John's, it's a fantastic book, folks. Um, I've just got a quick question, and then maybe we'll go for a break. Okay. What, are, what are some of the fundamental drivers of the present market, John? What are some of the fundamental things that are supporting the prices that we're seeing in certain areas. Um, in Reno, um, um, there's a couple of houses that recently gone up to sell, and some of the 
shakers and movers in the Reno community have just stated that they're just crazy prices. They're extremely worrying where this is going. They've put their voices on Facebook and in the local newspapers. So what are the drivers, John? Right now, so, and I think we're seeing this throughout the country now, I guess I'm, I come from a more what's going on Massachusetts mindset, but I think yeah. it's happening throughout the country. There's a limited supply. Yeah. Household formation exceeds new construction. So whenever that is the situation, until there's some type of balancing point between supply and demand, we're going to continue to see increasing home prices. Now, are we going to continue to see five to six, uh, five to six percent uh, increases per year moving forward? I don't think so. It's possible. It depends on your market. I think we're more likely to track inflation, maybe three percent, four percent, at least in the near term. So until we get some type of balance and new construction uh, keeps up with the demand, we're going to continue to see home prices increase, especially at the lower price points, because newer construction, the average new construction is 2,600 square feet, Mm -hmm. right? So that's at a higher price point. So I think we're going to see higher price appreciation in the lower price bracket that's in my market again say between 200 and 500 is going to see higher appreciation rates than we're seeing over a million dollars i would agree with that Uh, it's what we've been talking about for years out here is it's just a simple supply and demand factor Um, the other thing playing into it of course is that it's uh in san diego and san francisco and other major metropolitan areas it's more expensive to rent than it is to own in many cases. Now, the down payment factor um, may prevent people from uh, participating in that in, in certain loan cases. But overall, if you do the math, factor in the tax deductions, um, you are actually paying less per month to own a home in San Diego than you are to rent a home. And that's why people are saying this doesn't make sense. Um, so, But the rental market's blowing up here too because – so many people aren't buying homes or are, are unable to, and that's what they're left to do is rent. So we're seeing both rental markets and the resale and new construction markets just blowing up. And John, to your point, um, San Diego sounds like it's a similar price point market yeah. to you. And um, we're seeing the same thing. Essentially, if you're buying a single family home, new construction, it's practically the luxury market at this point, mm-hmm. um, or, it, or it's multi-unit dwelling, uh, mixed use. Um, the, the latest trend out here is retail, ground floor, and uh, multi-unit living, uh, second floor and up. Oh, fascinating. I think we will go for our breaks, break now, folks. And when we come back, we'll be talking to John some more about how this market is going to move and some of the things we should have learned from the last calamity. Be back in a minute, folks. Do you want quality leads from homeowners and buyers right in your own neighborhood? Then you need MailRight. It is a powerful but easy-to-use online marketing system that uses Facebook to generate real estate leads at a fraction of the cost you'd pay from our competition. We stand behind our work with a no-question-asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Get started today. Go to mail-right.com. We're coming back, folks. We're going to be discussing... 
more about the market as real estate professionals or people involved in the industry you should um, have eye on the market and should educate yourself so you're not one of those that just gets swept up with the media you know what's really going on back to you thomas thanks jonathan so you know obviously um john you and i are in real estate and our job essentially is to buy and sell real estate or represent people that are and but that being said, I'm not in the business of just cramming people into something for the sake of getting a sale <laughs> because ultimately my business is built on a foundation of referrals and relationships. Um, so I'm going to ask a question that um, we might not all like to answer to, but um, let's start with, it. do you think right now is a good time for people to buy a home? All right, so I think to answer that question, we can even answer another question first, and okay. that's whether or not home ownership is a good financial investment. Right? All right, so let's it, talk about it. All right, and then we can go into is now a good time. So um, to answer that question, I think if you look at Kay Schiller's uh, did a study over the last 125 years that homes have appreciated 0.3% above the rate of inflation for on average over the last 125 years. So that sounds pretty good. But I don't know if you've ever taken a close look at how the government uh, uh, records inflation. I believe they underestimate or understate what the real rate of inflation is. So mm -hmm. then if, if you do your spin on that, maybe right there it's a negative rate of return. But let's assume for this argument that it's accurate. Okay. From that. But before, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just sure. to be clear, um, and I'm just going to give you my novice understanding of inflation that I've always been told it's about 3% a year. Yes. So, okay. so, so historically, you know, for the last 125 years, it's been, I think, about 3.5%. Okay. Now, more recently, like in the last 10 years, it's been closer to 2, maybe 2.25. Okay. Just so we're clear on a number that we're assuming. Sure, and that the, accurate with. <laughs> so, in the Fed, the Federal Reserve targets inflation, right? They they uh, have their monetary policy, and one of the the factors of how they move the markets and what they do with their rates is to try to accomplish a two percent inflation rate. All right, so whether they how good they are at that is a different question, but from that 03 percent, let's say it's accurate that the inflation numbers are accurate. You have to deduct your real estate tax, mm -hmm. your, your transaction costs when you purchase, you do a home inspection, you do appraisal, there might be origination fees, yeah. um, there's an attorney fee on, on getting into a property. And then on the sales side, you have a real estate commission, typically, um, again, you have attorney's fees and other recording costs, and then the maintenance of the home. So when you factor all those things in, the real rate, rate of return on a home is negative. Now, that's a separate argument from whether it's cheaper to own a home versus rent a home. So I'm going to make this nuanced uh, discussion point that what I'm referring to is if people truly understood that it might not be a, a good financial investment, maybe they're not going to try to extend themselves and purchase a $600,000 home because it's, they think it's a good home. Right. Maybe they're going to just purchase what their family needs and buy a $400,000 home and live more financially comfortable and be able to uh, withstand some financial upset in their life. That's a good so, point. 
So we have a whole chapter in the book that talks about whether or not home ownership is a good financial investment. So now, to you, this is a long-winded answer to your question, is it a good time to buy now? So I think if people look at home ownership as consumption rather than investment, and they can comfortably afford it, it's really a life decision to make. Uh, the average person uh, lives in their home for nine years. That's the most recent statistic I've seen. So I think it, it depends where they are in their life. Now, I believe where we are in the real estate cycle is we peaked out at the third quarter of 2006. We hit the bottom in uh, near the end of 2012. Since 2012 to today, we've averaged on a national average basis 5 or 6% appreciation per year. Mm-hmm. I think we're past the trend line heading towards the next peak. So whenever you're above, the prices are above the trend line, right. your risk increases. So, but if you're in it for the long haul, you can afford, comfortably afford the mortgage. It, it doesn't really matter where you are in the cycle if your plan is to, to be in the house for 20 or 30 years. I think it's difficult to time the market. Right. So one more point I want to add to that is it can be a good investment if you buy at the bottom and sell at the top, right? I mean, that's not rocket science there. And that's why we try to have the chapter in the book about the real estate cycle. So you can kind of figure out, all right, where is my market in this cycle? Should I wait a few more years to buy? Or or I know that the prices might go down, but I can comfortably afford this mortgage and the intangibles are worth it to me to own a home now. So, I mean, and part of the... um what your point addresses is uh, how long do you plan to stay in the home? Uh, mm-hmm. That has a lot to do with, is this a good time or not? And then if you, if it is a short-term um, living situation, what are you going to do with the home at that point? Are you going to sell it? Or are you going to hang on to it? Cause that makes a difference too. Sure. So I, I, I like it, the points you're making because it's, it's really not um, waving people off of buying. It's just saying, Hey, let's, let's do this responsibly because you touched on a good point about the consu- the consumption, um, you know, my grandfather always he was a real estate investor, and that's how I got into real estate, working property management for him. But before it was legally possible to to work anywhere else, <laughs> I was working in property management, and he always taught me um, that the home you live in is not an investment. You know, it's an ex- it's a, a debt, it's an expense, it's a liability. The home that you rent is an investment and it's a source of income um or i should say rent out um not not you as a tenant um so he all so and one of the things uh, that we always did was we always fixed up our rentals before we fixed up our primary residences because we wanted to attract the best tenants to create the best income so that eventually we could fix up our own homes (laughs) but uh, I, I love the points you're making um, because it's not doom and gloom. It's just it's mm-hmm. being practical and, and thinking through your purchase decision. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I'm glad you make that distinction because uh, I'm certainly not saying that you can't make money investing in real estate. I do right. it for a living. Right. That's where I derive most of my income. So, but that's a, a separate set of uh, criteria and analysis that you look at there. You know, right. is the cash flow going to be positive if you buy this multifamily? What are my expenses? As long as it's cash flow positive, it, it's a good investment. Uh, and then if you're purchasing a fix and flip, you buy it low enough um, and you can add value above and beyond what you put into the property. 
uh, of course, uh, real estate can be a great investment. But what I was referring to specifically was single family home ownership where you're living in it as your primary residence. The primary residence. Yeah. yeah. It's well, and it, you know, it's, um, I, when I, I bought the home, um, that I live in right now, um, in 2007. So we hit a blip where we had what we thought hit the bottom. So I bought, and then of course we found a new bottom soon after later that year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can remember, uh, my, my, uh, uh, one of my clients uh, bought at the exact same time I did. We both closed escrow in the same week and they called me in a panic. You know, we've, we've just lost value. And I said, Hey, so did I, but I'm not going anywhere. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm going to ride this thing through. So we watched our home lose 50 K in value from what we paid for it. And now we're up 40 K. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, um, the analogy I always give people is the painting on the wall might be worth a million, but it's not worth a dime until you sell it. That's right. You know, it's just, it's uh, getting back to um, the point you made about the length of stay and the purpose of the house. Um, But I wanted to ask you, um, because of your extensive background uh, in both investing and with the banking industry, and then, of course, the research that went into this book, do you think we are in danger of repeating history in a sense. I mean, I know, I know we don't literally repeat it, but I mean, in some sense, is there a danger that we're heading back into the same patterns that created the bubble burst in, depending on what part of the country you lived in anywhere from 06 to 08? I think so. I I think that, so we talked about how real estate runs in cycles. So will it be as harsh as the last uh, bubble bursting? Um, I don't think so, but what we see is a lot of the same things happening. And so what happens leading up to the peak of a bubble is if more mortgage money is available, it gets capitalized into higher home prices, right? And then it ends up feeding on itself and people think that this real estate's a great investment. They see homes appreciating 6 10% depending on what markets, the higher markets, and they say, I want to get in on that. Right. So it kind of feeds on itself. But to the point about uh, getting back to what we talked about earlier about um, the mortgage money not being tight, FHA is allowing debt to incomes up to 57%, 96.5% LTV, 97 at Fannie and Freddie. Credit scores as low as 580 at FHA. Yeah. Right. So I know I'm talking uh, alphabet soup here, but all, all these things mean that they're just continuing to loosen the underwriting criteria. So what happens in the typical real estate cycle, they are loosening it just at the time that they should be tightening it, right? So it's pro-cyclical. Right. So everything gets, it's like a crescendo and, and the prices go up and up. The money gets easier and easier because I just read an article this morning talking about no money down loans are available today. Yeah. <laughs> so So again, they're loosening and um, what they use as the argument for that it's okay is that the default rate is low. Well, the default rate should be low in an appreciation, appreciating home and right. price environment, right? Yeah. Who's going to default if they, yeah. there's it's, positive equity, yeah, right? They only default positive. if there's negative equity. <laughs> so that argument holds zero weight, but every article I read or every interest group or activist group that wants to push housing to lower income people um, uses that as justification. 
Well, and I mean, also arguably they're, they're doing it to the loan that um, is like the lowest point of entry. I mean, it's mm -hmm. pe yes. people uh, arguably that have more f uh, fiscal responsibility or, or ability are not doing FHA loans. They're doing conventional mm -hmm. loans or they're all cash. Mm -hmm. At least, I, and I'm speaking from my experience here in Southern California, the people I'm physically working with um, and the people that are struggling to figure out how to get a home are taking advantage of FHA. So it's the people that are most likely to default getting the least point of entry uh, into the market, which, um, you know, and, and then here we go again. Um, now, the, the only good news about that, in a sense, is that at least in San Diego, it's extremely difficult to find a property that's FHA approved because um, the, the price point for most FHA buyers that I've worked with are below the median home price of San Diego, which means they're going to end up in a condo. And of course, condos have to be FHA approved. And um, those are harder and harder to find because um, we're coming across a lot of expired FHA approved, like these condos don't bother to renew them. And, it, and it may, that may be a result of what they went through last time. Well, and so I just went to a, a broker's conference where a representative from FHA was there talking about how to get those F, uh, condos that are not approved to get them approved. So that's going to that's gonna turn 180 degrees and you're going to see a lot more condos getting FHA approval and mm -hmm. at uh, surprisingly low owner-occupied rates. Well, you know, and, and I'm not trying to put down anyone that's trying to get a home and, and the FHA is their only answer, but it's, you know, when you've been through this before and you're seeing people start to repeat the, 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 the pattern of what, what created a disaster last time, I mean, um, it's, I mean, you even pointed this out in your book that the only thing worse than what we went through uh, in the last uh, bubble burst was the Great Depression. And that's not a great benchmark to, to have to compare something to. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, to me, it's just concerning. But, you know, how, the, the, the battle you're fighting, though, is you've got a, an, uh, an agent that may not be um, uh, doing a regular business yet, and they get an opportunity, and they're, gonna, they're not going to try to talk somebody out of buying. They're going to try to help them do whatever they can to buy. So, you know, and I know that, um, I don't know about you, but I mean, I know I, I literally had a client accuse me of not warning her that the bubble was going to burst. Like I had the crystal ball and I should have told everyone. <laughs> so I know people were blaming anyone that bought a home was probably blaming their realtor and, and their appraiser and their lender. Um, but I mean, there's that tightrope. I mean, you, you have to do right by your clients. We have a fiduciary duty, but we also need to do right by our families and make a living. So uh, how do you see that? Where's the moral compass? Well, so I think that the, the, the right thing to do is to explain it to them, is to help them become educated, because that's where the problem really begins, in a, a lack of education of the buyers, right? Yeah. So that's one of the purposes of the book, is to educate the buyers. So I think it's important to explain it to them. At the end of the day, it's the client that makes the decision. So we give them the information, and if they want to go and, and only put uh, 3.5 or 3% down and they want to go to the hilt and have debt to income at 57%, that's beyond our control. 
But what's within our control is to be honest with them about the market and, uh, and whether or not home ownership is a good investment. They're going to make their decision regardless. Most of them, even though I say this to clients, mm-hmm. I don't know if they don't believe me or that the emotion is too, too much. And ultimately, my job is to represent what they want to do. Right. So I give them the information and they're going to do what they're going to do. Well, there's, and a then lot, I, there's a lot of drivers, John, you know, a lot of people in California, it's their retirement fund. You know, they sell, they sell in Southern California and they move to Nevada um, and it finances their retirement to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Um, and there's other drivers, isn't there? Um, I've got a question. Fanny Mac and Fanny Faye, I'm probably not pronouncing them. They, am I correct? They were established in the 1930s in the Great Recession. And what has been their role because in the collapse and their role at the present moment? So uh, FHA was, uh, came out of the 30s. Uh, Freddie Mac, I believe, was in the 60s to, to create competition oh. with Fannie Mae. Um, and these, so, are, these are kind of quasi-independent, but they are, they are covered by the, by the taxpayer. Is that correct? It, it, that's right. I mean, so the profits go to the investors, the losses go to the taxpayers. So oh, it's a, well, can I buy that? <laughs> can I get into that? <laughs> so it's a corrupt system, and that's why they're in conservatorship now, because it's, it, it's a proven failed, they're proven failed business models. So they've been in... Uh, under FHFA conservatorship since I think it was 2008. And that's why there's finally talk about doing something and getting them off the books of the government. I think that's important. Um, so what was your question about Fannie and Freddie? Yeah, what is their role in, in, in the collapse and their role in the present situation? So we, uh, Chris and I believe that they played uh, a critical role. So HUD is the mission regulator of Fannie and Freddie. HUD had affordable housing goals starting in the early 90s. I think it was at 30% of the loans they purchased had to be from low to moderate income borrowers. That continued to increase each year up until 2006, where it capped out at 56% of all loans that Fannie and Freddie purchased had to come from low to moderate income borrowers. So think about that our own government was pushing these higher risk mortgages, right? HUD was pushing it. So HUD still has these affordable housing goals. And we talk about this in the book about our recommendations on how to correct some of these uh, structural flaws. And one of them is to get rid of the uh, affordable housing goals. Now, if Fannie and Freddie were not quasi government agencies, politicians wouldn't be able to manipulate who gets credit. Mm. So that's why I think that it's been in limbo for eight years, coming up on nine years, because I think that the politicians like to buy votes by saying uh, we're going to help with affordable mortgages to low to moderate income borrowers. Now, I believe that we need to help those that need help. Um, But I think many of the policies hurt the very group that was targeted to assist they ended up losing their homes. So they're not any better off. You know, it's, it's a complicated thing. And I, some of the answers to your question, I've really answered in simplistic terms, but um, it, it goes much deeper than we've scratched the surface on here. 
Well, I know we're coming up on our time, so I want to uh, thank you very much, John, for being our guest today. And it, I mean, it's a huge topic. And we probably could do two shows on it. Um, but I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on and, and sharing your viewpoint. I want to remind people that the book is Easy Money and the American Real Estate Ponzi Scheme, which you can get on Amazon. Uh, and then, uh, John, do you want to share with people the best way to reach out to you and get in contact with you? Sure. Uh, my, my website is uh, www.agostinelli.com. That's A-G-O-S as in Sam, T-I-N-E-L-L-I.com. We also have a book website, easymoneyinamerica.com. Uh, we have the contact buttons on there if you want to uh, be kept in the loop on uh, recent op-ed pieces by both uh, Chris and myself. We have them on there. Our blog pieces go on there too, so you can easily sign up for the newsletter or just click on the contact us now button. Awesome. And Jonathan, you want to share where people can uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, but before that, I, I know this subject seems a bit complicated, but I think it's really as a professional real estate professional agent, the more you can educate yourself about about the industry, about where it's going, the more effective you're going to be. So um, I, I thought it was a fantastic interview and we've touched many interesting things how to get hold of me it's quite easy folks you can get me on twitter on my own twitter feed which is at jonathan denwood or you can email me at jonathan at mel hyphen right.com and you've got any questions suggestions for the show um that would be great back to you thomas all right and uh, i want to again uh, congratulate um us but you especially jonathan on 100 episodes and I want to thank everyone for making that possible. Uh, we appreciate you listening and downloading, and we love your comments. Uh, I'm Thomas J. Nelson. I am your co-host here, and I'm also a residential realtor in San Diego, California, where I'm never too busy for your referrals. And you can find me on thomasjnelsonrealtor.com or on social media. And again, I want to thank uh, John Agostinelli of the Agostinelli Realty Group out of Massachusetts and author of Easy Money. Um, check out the book, check out his blog, a lot of interesting stuff, folks. And I agree with Jonathan. Uh, unfortunately, one of the most unique selling propositions a realtor can offer his client to separate himself from the masses is that they're educated and they actually stay up on current events. Uh, so many people gloss over these topics because they're not fun to talk about, are they? <laughs> so, because they seem like a threat to our business, but they're really not. I think if you approach it with an educated mind, you actually find the opportunity in any kind of market. John, thanks again for joining us on the show. We really appreciate you being here, and good luck with the book. Thanks so much, Thomas and Jonathan, for having me on. Really Thank appreciate you. it. All right, folks, we'll be back next week on the Mail Right Real Estate Agent Podcast Show for episode 101. Until then, have a great rest of your week. Thank you. Bye-bye.